Resilient Cyber Podcast brings you conversations from diverse cybersecurity professionals, ranging from executives, subject matter experts, and aspiring entrants. Today's diverse threat landscape requires systems that can withstand a variety of cyber incidents, remaining trustworthy and secure. Resilient Cyber is sponsored by Acquia, a cybersecurity service, disabled veteran-owned small business that is passionate about enabling innovation and driving secure digital transformation. Acquia believes in guardrails over roadblocks and security as a business and mission enabler. Learn more at acquia.us. That's A-Q-U-I-A dot U-S. Before we start the episode, we want to give a big thank you to our season four sponsor, Nucleus Security. Meet Nucleus, the only risk-based vulnerability management platform purpose-built for the world's most complex enterprises. Nucleus takes the mountain of vulnerability data that is produced by your security stack and unifies it into one clean dashboard that helps you make sense of your assets and vulnerabilities. With Nucleus, users get a normalized and deduplicated list of vulnerabilities across network devices, cloud, applications, and more. Next, we layer in risk and vulnerability intelligence from sources like Mondiant to help you prioritize the vulnerabilities that matter most. Ready to see how Nucleus can help improve your vulnerability management program? Head to NucleusSec.com today. Thank you for joining the Resilient Cyber Show. My name is Chris Hughes, along with my co-host, Dr. Nikki Robinson. Hey, everybody. And today we're joined by Joe Lewis. Joe, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate the uh, opportunity. Yeah, definitely. I've been following you online for a little bit here. We've exchanged a lot of comments and stuff, but first time I've ever actually chatted with you via video, so I'm excited. Um, but for folks that don't know you or your background or what you're up to, do you mind telling us a bit about your uh, your current position as well as how you got to it? Sure. Uh, so I am the Chief Information Security Officer for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So uh, that's a very long title, uh, it, but it basically means I am the Senior Cyber Program Director for the CDC. Um, the, the path to the CISO's desk is not a direct line. I got to tell you, it's, uh, it's very much kind of a, a bob and weave and, and very, very, uh, highly specific. My, my, uh, path actually came from IT operations. Uh, I was U.S. Marine for seven and a half years. And in that time I did IT operations. And then I ran away from IT for three years to go work in the private sector. Uh, and I, I went as far and as uh, fast as I could get. I worked in the production and operations space as a production manager, which uh, and we and we could talk about this more, but it really helped kind of from service to uh, revenue generating activities as a cost center on a profit and loss. And so I see a lot of uh, corollaries there between that and cybersecurity. But after that, I became a federal employee, which I've been doing for the last, you know, almost 14, 15 years. I've been at three different agencies. I've been at the Department of the Army. I uh, worked for the Department of Energy for about a year and a half. And I've been with uh, uh, CDC for about five, six months now. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. You have such a great background, which we are going to dive into too. Um, but I wanted to ask you as someone who's been a CISO for, you know, five, six months, sort of, uh, get stepping into this role. Um, how's it going? How are you feeling? Uh, how have the first few months been? How, how's everything been? So if you'd asked me 30 days ago, I probably would have had a lot more bags under my eyes and I might've had some more apoplectic type responses, but uh, truth be told it's, it's been really, really great. Um, you know, it is a, vital mission that most people don't recognize exists. 
Um, we are in the public health space, which is a slightly nuanced difference from the, the healthcare space, um, insofar that we're focused on very, very broad topics that, that, that affect the public health. So things like COVID-19 vaccines and, and testing data. And um, I guess I didn't realize prior to my arrival that um, we are a data-driven organization and there are just, we're in 60 countries. We have 26, 7,000 employees worldwide. I mean, it's a it's a very, very large footprint with a really, really critical mission. And so um, the agency has been great. Everybody's been very, very welcoming. I finally figured out enough that I can get some sleep at night. So that's good. Um, but, you know, I, I, I love it. It's, it's been great. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, I can't even imagine popping into like that role with that many people. And I'm sure that there's a ton of nuance and all kinds of things. So that's, that's awesome to hear. Um, and one of the ways that you and I sort of got connected is our sort of one foot in the door with being a practitioner and one foot in the door with academia and, and uh, research. So uh, I'm curious with your background in academia as an adjunct professor, um, and now with your cybersecurity and all this executive and, and leadership experience, where would you say sort of um, maybe some of that experience with academia or research comes in? Or how does that blend of experience sort of help you in what you do? You know, it's it's. I'm really glad you asked that question because I feel like um, first and foremost, you need to start from the place that you recognize that you're an unfinished product. And academia and research and and leadership and uh, management training, self reflection and and all of those things that that all stems from that place where you recognize that you you need to continue to improve and you need to to work on yourself. And so um, from from that perspective, uh, having that background in academia, having that background in in cyber, and then now as an executive, a senior executive in the in the federal workforce. Um, they've all done a really nice job helping set me up for longer term success. Right. Cause I recognize that I'm, I'm not, I'm not where I need to be. I'm never going to be where I want to be. So uh, as long as I can continually improve, I think that's, that's good. So. Yeah. I just a quick comment before I turn it over to Chris, because that's, I feel like one of the same ways I, I love academia and research and constantly challenging myself because uh, I don't know everything. And I feel like the more I research, the more I'm like, oh, the, I just know nothing. I have so yeah. much I have to learn. And it's been such a beneficial um, area to to complement what I do uh, as a security architect. Yeah, for sure. And and for me, um, I, there's a great book by Christian Espinoza that's called The Smartest Person in the Room. And the smartest person in the room should not be the person that's in charge. And, and I, I recognize that I don't ever want to be the smartest person in the room. Uh, if you ask Michael Dell, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room, right? Um, and so, uh, the more I realize that I don't know, the more I realize I want to know. And so it's, it's, it's been uh, helpful in that way to, to kind of broaden my perspective. Yeah. A couple of things you said there jumped out to me is like the smartest person in the room. I've read that book. It's actually a great book. Um, and it, you know, kind of like the same thing with like big fish, little pond, or, you know, those kind of sayings is like, uh, you're not going to grow if you're not surrounded by people who can push you or know more than you, or you can learn from or things like that. Uh, so I love that kind of perspective. And then also you and Nikki went back and forth a little bit about how much there is to learn and how you never really know it all. And, uh, you know, throughout my career, you know, uh, you can go through periods where it feels overwhelming. Like, you know, I just don't know enough. Like why, how am I even in this position? But you could also flip that paradigm and say, wow, there's so much I have to learn. There's so much opportunity here for growth, but it really depends how you look at it. And that really dictates how you feel about things. Um, I wanted to ask you too, you know, I, I, when I bring people on, I often, you know, say, Hey, is there anything you're passionate about or something you want to talk about? When I asked you, you brought up the concept of servant leadership. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, you know, with regard to servant leadership, you know, what does that mean to you more broadly? And then what does it mean to you as a CISO and in the cybersecurity career field too? 
I'm, I'm glad we have an opportunity to talk about that because I feel like, uh, in, in my, my, my peer and partner, uh, Rob Wood, he and I have, have uh, exchanged a lot of conversations about kind of the softer side of cyber. Um, but the, the reality is I think we as technologists take people that are good technologists and make them leaders. And that doesn't always translate well because the skills that make you a good technician or a technologist are not the skills that make you a good leader. And sometimes there's a very, very stark gap between the training, the coaching, the mentoring that they need in order to be effective. And so for me, servant leadership was about recognizing one, I'm an unfinished product. And two, that um, that is a mechanism for me, both personally gratifying, but also extremely rewarding for the staff to be an effective leader and manager. And so um, you know, bottom line, the, the 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 precepts of servant leadership are about inverting the pyramid. Okay, so if you think of your typical hierarchical pyramid, you've got your leader at the top, and you've got your frontline employees at the very very bottom. Well, who are the people that are interfacing with our customers? The people at the very very bottom, right? So if you flip the par- the the pyramid upside down, you say, well, if I'm if I'm supporting the people that are interfacing with our customers for maximum value, then the job of the supervisor is to enable the employee. The job of the manager is to enable the supervisor. And my job at the very, very tip of the pyramid at the very bottom is to make sure everybody's successful by meeting their, their needs and their, their requirements to be successful. And so operating from that premise, you know, there's a ton of really great literature out there. Anything by Jim Hunter, uh, the, the servant, the culture, the world's most powerful leadership principle. Those are all great books that helped uh, kind of frame how I approach being a leader in this space. Yeah, I love it. And I love that paradigm uh, flip you talked about because it's so true. And when you think about that, you know, that means you have a lot of lines of communication, a lot of interactions with other humans, a lot of people, a lot of communication. Uh, but when we look at the career field, all of our conversation around is, is around DevSecOps and, you know, in, encryption and quantum and zero trust and on and on. But you're, you're emphasizing the role of the soft skills that make you successful or are critical to be a good leader. You know, why do you think that soft skills, you know, I know this is another thing that Rob Wood's a big proponent of, uh, and we've had him on in the past, but why do you think soft Soft skills are so overlooked when it comes to, you know, cybersecurity. It's always a focus on the technical side. That's a really great question. And I think, it, again, it's about how we select people for leadership positions in technology and cyber positions, right? It's it, it it's the Peter principle. We're going to take somebody that's a great technologist and make them a supervisor because they were good at technology. And that's, I think we're not looking at the right skill sets. We're not looking at the, the, the right um, attributes or we're not providing the right coaching, training, and mentoring along the way for that to happen. Um, so, but for me, it's, it's so much more important because if not, we do get bogged down in those technical weeds, right? And, and the role of the CISO is to be able to communicate in business terms to the executive leadership, how cyber risk translates to organizational risk. And if you are not an empathetic communicator, or an, uh, if you're not able to speak in business terms or understand how to be an effective leader, then, then you're never going to do those things. Um, and the last piece I'll say about this is that, um, you know, being a, a good leader means uh, well, cyber is just a team sport now. Right. Uh, humans are our weakest link, unfortunately. And so everybody needs to be on the front lines. And, and that requires relationship building. It re- requires your ability to communicate effectively. And all of those are soft skills. Those are not technology skills at all. Yeah, I I feel like relationship building has been one of my biggest assets when it comes to being in cybersecurity, right? Because whether I'm talking to a developer or a leadership or whoever it might be, building a relationship with someone, that's going to help me maybe make a product more secure, do better risk assessment, whatever it might be. Um, and, and relationship building is the first step of getting all those things done. Uh, don't mind my puppy in the background, just destroying everything. Um, <laughs> um, so I uh, to switch gears just a little bit, 
since you are someone that's, you know, you're relatively new to the CISO role, you have a ton of executive and, and leadership experience, but what kind of surprised you about the CISO role? Were there anything, cha any challenges or anything that was surprisingly good or exciting um, about the CISO role? Well, so I think it's probably more organizational than anything, but um, what I was most surprised with was uh, my staff is so ready for new direction, right? Uh, you know, the consummate professionals in the cybersecurity program office at the CDC, they've been protecting this agency before I got here. And they will be protecting it after I leave. But it was really, really gratifying to, to feel the energy when I started talking about um, the new direction, right? And and really, we're, we're trying to morph our organization to more of a customer experience, customer-driven service type of organization. And, and that's been met with resounding, you know, positive positivity. And that's something that I I guess I've been a little surprised about and in a good way, obviously. That's great. I love that answer. I know I feel like uh um like what a, a pleasant surprise, right? To walk in and be open to change or open to, you know, um trying something new. Um, so as someone who is probably hiring security practitioners or or looking for potentially like new talent, um, if anyone's looking to move into a cybersecurity management role or maybe thinking about that sort of next step in their um in their career, is there anything that you uh look for in a skill set or or you think would be helpful um to sort of build as a skill set when moving into a leadership role? And then you mentioned some books, if you had any other books or references that you might recommend. Sure. So uh, I think especially given my understanding and my my realization that technical skills are not the kind of the the only thing that we need at this point um i'm definitely looking for people that understand how to build relationships i'm looking for people that are effective communicators people that understand risk which i think we as cybersecurity practitioners talk about risk a lot but if you think about what risk is it's probability times impact well impact is a mission or an operational impact and so we need to be understanding of business and operations in order to be able to have risk informed decisions and so those are the kinds of things that i'm really really looking for especially for anybody that's looking to be a leader in this in this type of of rapidly evolving agile environment um uh, books how, how, how much time do we have because I, I i read like 30 books last year so um there's a there's a, a series of books by the arbinger institute which are great there's one called leadership and self-deception which i really love there's a follow-on book to that called the anatomy of peace um and that really helped focus me from an empathetic communication perspective it talks about how two people walk into a communication each with their own desires and their own kind of inputs that they want to get out of a, a conversation and being empathetic to understanding that somebody else has something that they want to get out of the conversation makes you a better listener and not just waiting for your turn to talk. And so um, let's see what else uh, I, I read uh, team of teams by general McChrystal, make your bed by uh, Admiral McRaven. I mean, it just as, as, as much time as you've got, I could talk about books because I love it. It's, it's one of my passions for sure. I'm laughing because I've read a lot of those, like Make Your Bed and, and, and other books like that, a lot of great books in that in that list you rambled off. Um, so I wanted to ask, you know, we talked about the soft skills a lot, you know, but uh, that that being said, in the federal space and in cyber in general, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on things like uh, the cybersecurity executive order, OMB memo, zero trust, software supply chain security. So as a leader, you know, new to the federal CISO role, how are you calibrating yourself? And then how do you ensure that, you know, your team does have the technical depth, you know, to tackle some of these uh, these initiatives, basically, because it does take, you know, obviously some technical uh, expertise, too. Right. So I think it starts with a firm understanding that we need to be investing in people 
both at the technological and the human side in order for them to be successful. Because you're right, our technologies adapt too quickly, our requirements are changing rapidly, um, and we need to be on the front end of those things. I think there are some people out there that are hesitant to invest in training their staff because the worry is, well, they're going to leave. They're gonna, I'm going to train, I'm going to invest them, they're going to leave. Well, for me, it's great. If they leave better than when they got here, then that's, that's a, a good thing. Um, and while we are able to take advantage of their skill sets, great, that's good for us. And um, I, I think if you if you start from that perspective, you'll realize that, you know, investing in people is always going to be a good thing. Um, in terms of emerging requirements, sometimes it feels like they're just coming every week, every month. It's It, it happens fast. Um, and a lot of these are unfunded. And I, and I, I want to make sure everybody recognizes that when these new requirements come out, it's like, hey, go do these things and then analyze how much money you'll need to do them. And then, by the way, there's no money. Right. You're like, well, how, how do I how do I do all this? Um, and I'll tell you how you do it, at least how we're doing it, which is we modernize our way into new requirements. Right. So we we just inject these new requirements into our development life cycles. So as we're retiring old capabilities, as we're modernizing tools, we're doing so with these new requirements in mind so that we just make that a part of the fabric of our decision making. Right. And so from that perspective, we can, you know, eat the elephant one bite at a time as opposed to just being handed a massive set of requirements that we know we're never going to meet. So from that perspective, right, with the the number of different things that are going on, zero trust, um, S-bombs, like every everything that's happening sort of in the industry, are you more worried about zero trust, software supply chain security, some of the big topics, or are you more, more worried on the AIML space, things like ChatGPT and all the others that are coming out? Uh, what, are, what are you thinking more about these days? So there are many things that keep me awake at night, right? <laughs> I, it just how much, you know, it's like if you fragment it out, there's there's a lot that that, that helps keep you awake at night. But um, I think not being an inhibitor to progress is probably my biggest concern because the federal government is great at making bureaucracy for the sake of bureaucracy. And, and that's not a, a, that is not how you derive value for those executing the mission. Um, so making sure that my own internal processes are um, agile enough and nimble enough to be able to respond in the event that we have a new uh, technology, a disruptive technology like ChatGPT or, or something like that, that we're not we're not just going to slam the door and say no, you can't do that because that's that's the opposite of being supportive. And so um, I, that said, I mean AI machine learning is definitely something that we're grappling with as an agency. It's the entire federal government is trying to wrap their arms around. Even the White House is looking at options for you know do we need a national policy on how uh, federal agencies should approach the use of uh, AI and machine learning and natural language processors and all these other things. And so, um, you know, what my my end goal is to not have to invent the wheel or reinvent the wheel. I, I want to work with my other federal peers and find out ways that they're successfully using these technologies and 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 doing so in a smart and secure way, and then leverage those um, for CDC. Yeah, great. Uh, it, it, I think it's top of mind for all of us in sort of a how can it be used? How will it be used? How is it already being used? Sort of, and and how do we secure it or or understand how to to really use it and secure it? Um, well, that's going to take me to my last question for you, uh, which we ask everyone, and I'm uh, excited to hear your answer based on your experience in in leadership and cybersecurity and IT operations too. Uh, but what does cyber resiliency mean to you? Cyber resiliency means that. Cybersecurity derives value for the business, right? And and I, I when I first got to the CDC, I, I let everybody know that private sector has already figured out that the business drives the cyber, the cyber doesn't drive the business, and that's what cyber resiliency is, right? If we can generate 
demonstrate and continue to provide value to those that are executing the mission, then they're going to be more willing to come to us when they they have new and emerging requirements and say, hey, how do I do this smartly? How do I do this securely? And and that's kind of a that's that's the point where you've reached utopia, right? Where we can say, hey, I'm I'm now not only providing value to your existing uh, requirements, your existing business needs, but you're smart. We're smart enough now that we can have this conversation on, you know, you coming back uh, whenever you've got new requirements. And so that's that's kind of what resiliency means to me. Yeah, I really like that answer. It's definitely unique compared to what we've heard. Typically, a lot of people talk about being able to withstand and recover and bounce back, which is all valid. Uh, but you talked about providing value to the business. And we've heard a lot about, you know, cybersecurity needing to shift to be a business enabler. And obviously, we're hearing a lot about, you know, building cyber in versus bolting it on. You're talking about the human interaction piece, where if you show value, you show that you're going to provide support and be a collaborative entity, people are more likely to engage you early on versus coming, you know, you come after the fact, say, oh, they're already using this. They just didn't engage us because they view us as a, an inhibitor, basically. For sure. Yeah. And I got to tell you, as the as the federal CISO, uh, the, the question comes, well, how do I get an authorization to operate? Like, whoa, we're asking the wrong questions, guys, right? Like we, what we should be asking is how do I procure securely? How do I develop securely? How, how, how can you help me with your existing service offerings to make sure that when we get to the authorization stage, it's not such an arduous process? And I think that's where that value-driven conversation comes from. That's where we say, you know, what we're working on right now is building a service catalog. Here's all the services that we're offering. Here are all the NIST controls that we can help make compliant for you as a part of the authorization process, be it common controls, inheritable controls, all of those things, and say, you know, instead of 800 controls, maybe you only have to worry about 30 or 40 of them because we're going to take care of the rest. And that's a value-driven conversation, you know, and, and that's just, that's not a, I don't think that's a way that the federal government typically thinks about things. I think it's very much the old days of information assurance where you, this, this is where you go to hear no, you know, and that's, that's. That's not what I want. That's not the that's not the the approach I'm taking. So. I I love that answer. I I think it's such a um I mean such a refreshing take, but such a needed take. You know how how can we make things easier? You know for all the people that are consuming security, right? Security services. So, um, I love that. I wanted to say a huge thank you, Joe, for joining us today <laughs> as my dog goes nuts behind me. Thank you so much. We got to talk about leadership, cybersecurity. Um, and everything in between. So that's going to take us out for this week. Thanks, everyone. And we'll see everybody next week. Thanks, folks.